everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former members of the U.S. intelligence community. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Douglas uh, Ollivant. He is a retired U.S. Army officer, a former director um, for Iraq during the Bush and Obama administrations. Um, he's also a senior fellow for um, New America and currently a uh, managing partner for Mantid International. Doug served uh, two tours in Iraq and has some very interesting thoughts um, about that time. Doug, welcome to AFIO Now. Great to see you. Um, Doug, you served twice uh, in Iraq, uh, once during um, Operation Iraqi Freedom II and then during the surge in the early to mid-2000s. What differences did you see between those two tours? Well, there were very, very different times in Iraq. Uh, so I first went to Iraq in the summer of 2004. Uh, my unit, 1st Battalion of the 5th Cavalry, had already been there for several months. I joined them as a midsummer replacement. And this is the very early days of, uh, of the Iraqi occupation, or whatever we like to call it. Uh, when I got there, um, Jerry Bremer had, was just about to leave. He would leave uh, you know, 10 days after I got to Iraq, um, ending the CPA and moving over to the Iraqi interim government. So it was a early time. Uh, it was a very interesting time. And the level of violence had not gotten terribly high yet. Uh, you had had earlier that year in April of 2004, a few battles in East Baghdad, one of them uh, you know, very notably captured in Martha Raddatz's uh, Coming Home uh, book and uh, television series, uh, and, and some in Najaf. But in general, the level of violence in Iraq was still relatively low. And, and not only was the level of violence low, but the ability of the insurgents, the technical capacity of the Iraqi insurgents, both Shia and Sunni, um, had not yet reached a very high level. They were still learning how to be insurgents. So there were IEDs out there, but they weren't very impressive. They didn't, um, you know, they weren't very sophisticated. They were relatively easy to find. Um, which again is not to say that we didn't stumble onto them because our level of capacity wasn't particularly high yet either. We were also learning how to work in this type of situation. Um, and I guess that's, that's uh, an interesting point to think about is both sides kind of come to the early stages of conflict as you are. Um, you are going to war, you know, as, as Secretary Rumsfeld famously said, with the army you have, uh, but the insurgency is also working with the insurgents they have, which in the early stages aren't terribly uh, competent yet. Doug, I think our listeners would be interested to the degree that you're comfortable talking a little bit about some of the experiences that you had in that time, some of the challenges that you faced, and, and some of the early solutions that you and your unit came up with. Sure. Uh, happy to talk about that. And we'll I'll stick with the 2004-2005 period uh, for now. I realize you asked me to compare and contrast with 2007. We'll get to that uh, at some point. Um, but my first tour in 2004-05, I was on the ground. I was the Battalion Operations Officer, or S3, uh, for 1-5 Cavalry. 
Um, my experience um, is very different than a lot of other people in that I went to war for the first time as a mid-30s year old major. Uh, so I was I was 37. I was a field grade officer. I'd gone to graduate school. I'd been married a long time. I'd raised children. So I had a much very I had a very different maturity level, uh, even though I was encountering combat um, and killing and being killed or having people killed for the first time. So again, my experience was very, very different than some 18, 19, 20 year old single kid who just graduated high school and didn't have the the life experience to fall back on. There are uh, almost four different periods I can talk about in that first year. So my battalion was headquartered in Kadamia, which is the Shia religious district of Baghdad. And there's a major shrine, the Kadamia shrine, uh, that's in north central Baghdad. Um, and Kadamia is the district around the Kadamia shrine. Um, it is the Shia religious center of Baghdad. Um, and so we spent the bulk of our time based there and got a very intense education in intra-Shia dynamics. Because um, <clears throat> one of the themes I'll talk about again is, you know, you go to war as you are. And we went not understanding very much. I mean, I was a field grade officer. I'd gone to graduate school. I'm in my 30s. And I went to Baghdad not really understanding the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims. And, and so I can only imagine the understanding of uh, others in my unit was considerably less. But we very, very quickly learned and got an intense education in not only um, are these Shia Arabs or Shia Iraqis who are very different than their Sunni counterparts in some ways, uh, but they have internal tensions inside themselves. So inside Qadamiya, we I would say we were primarily dealing with three elites, uh, Hussein al-Sadr, who kind of represented the institutional side, probably the, the Dawa party, um, who was the custodian of the shrine. Um, and then we dealt with Hazm and Bahal Raji, who were Sadrists uh, and represented the Sadrist movement. Um, interestingly, Hussein al-Sadr was a relative of the Sadrists, but not part of the Sadrist movement. This all got very complicated. Um, and a cleric named Jalaluddin al-Sagir, uh, who was part of Iski or Skiri uh, and the Badr Corps. Um, and ran a mosque called the Barotha Mosque, a uh, major mosque just outside Kadamia. And those three elites um, ran, had very, very different approaches. You know, one was very institutional. The, the Sadrists represented the Shia lower classes, the, the very, very poor uh, of Baghdad. And then the uh, Skiri represented the more ideological-minded, much more anti-Sunni wing of the Shia at that time. We very, very quickly got an education that, well, you know, Shia are not Shia are not Shia. There are all kinds of internal tensions inside them, um, which incidentally we're seeing today as they're trying to form a government. And you have the Sadrists versus everyone else inside Baghdad today. Uh, having some very, very serious differences over Iraq's political future. So first, and, uh, first was in Najaf. Let me, let me, or in, in Kadamia, 
We would then spend 30 days in Naja fighting a high-intensity battle in August of 2004, the Battle of Naja Cemetery, um, which was a, a very high, kinetic, almost old-fashioned uh, battle with the Sauterists inside the Naja Shrine and American forces, Marines, and two Army battalions outside it trying to dislodge them from this uh, stronghold without destroying the cultural center that they were that they had turned into a stronghold. We then go back to Katamiya. We then went to Fallujah for the Battle of Second Fallujah. Um, unlike Najaf, my battalion was in the, the center of the fighting in Najaf. In Fallujah, we were more on the periphery, isolating Fallujah for two infantry battalions and the Marines who would actually do the clearing of Fallujah. But we were close enough to it um, to see some combat at Fallujah. And then we would come back to Baghdad in January, February of 2005 and prepare for the first Iraqi elections. So those are the, the four ways I think about that first tour for me and my unit. Katamiya and really doing uh, detective work, counterinsurgency, intelligence work, counterinsurgency inside Katamiya. Then the high-intensity battles in Najaf and at Fallujah. Um, and then preparing for the elections, helping secure the elections, acting essentially as a police force, providing stability uh, as Iraq ramped up for its first election. And as you and your unit quickly got educated on um, the reality on the ground, how much did your training help and, and how much did you develop kind of field expedience as you went along? <clears throat> it was very much field expedient. You know, none of us had any experience in how you go about doing this and how you separate insurgents from the population. Um, my battalion would eventually develop some sources among the Iraqis who would help us find uh, the insurgents who were doing the most shooting at us. And at this time, it was the proto-Al-Qaeda in Iraq. I don't think they'd formally coalesced into that organization yet, but certainly that was what we were seeing, were groups that were would either be Al-Qaeda in Iraq later or would eventually be threads that would join that organization or at least support that organization. So very serious Sunni Islamists and or Ba'athists um, who were conducting the bulk of the attacks against us. And so we found sources among the Iraqi Shia who knew who these people were, who knew where they lived, who knew what their patterns of life were and would help us find the right targets to hit. It took us a while to communicate to them that, you know, when we went to their houses, we couldn't just arrest them on their say-so that they're bad people, uh, that we actually needed to have some evidence of, you know, their attacks against us or something like that. That took a couple iterations for them to learn and figure out. But eventually, we developed a targeting cycle. We would get tips from our sources we would go, you know, raid a target at night. We would gather intelligence from that. And from what we would gather from that, plus further tips from our sources, two or three days later, we'd be ready to hit a target in, you know, at midnight again. 
in 2004, when we were doing this, this was pretty revolutionary to have a three-day targeting cycle. By 2007, there was a brigade of the 82nd on East Baghdad, and they were going through that cycle twice a night. You know, they'd hit one target early in the night, develop the intelligence off that target, and hit another one just before dawn the following morning. So certainly, we got much, much better over time. What we were doing in 2004 was revolutionary for its time, I think, uh, but it was be very, very primitive three, just three years later. Doug, during my career, it was my privilege to serve with a number of really excellent foreign area officers, FAOs. Mm-hmm. In my experience, uh, I'm an Arabic speaker, and, and they were also people with Arabic and with uh, Middle Eastern area knowledge. Right. Uh, did your unit get any benefit from that at all, or are there too few of us and too many of you? Right. There, there, there were too few foreign area officers. I knew several from the old days, but they they weren't around our unit. They weren't available as resources. In my second tour in 2007, when I was up at the divisional level, I had access to not only those at the division, but at the core and at uh, MNFI, the four-star headquarters in Baghdad, first General Casey and then General Petraeus. Then there were FAOs running around and I knew them and I had access to some of them. But no, at the tactical level, the units that were actually in the fight conducting the operations had no access to to those people. They're, again, there's as you say, there's just not enough of them. They're designed for a peacetime army so that there's enough to put, you know, two or three of them in every embassy and have a couple sitting at, you know, central command in Washington to give advice on on their region. Uh, They're not designed to expand to provide one or two advisors to every battalion or even brigade during combat. That would have been extremely helpful, (laughs) extremely helpful had we had them at the tactical level. Uh, We simply didn't have anyone who could give us that kind of guidance. I don't believe we had an Arabic speaker, you know, who was a non-hyphenated American anywhere in the unit. No uniform wearing Arabic speakers. We had to you know, contracted interpreters, both native Iraqis and Iraqi Americans. Um, but outside of that, no. Doug, you began to do this just a little bit during your uh, last response, but take us a little far forward and contrast the 2004 experience to the uh, 2007 experience, please. Sure. It's hard to talk about 2007 without talking about 2006. The 2007 surge is generally viewed as a success or at least a limited success. And success has a thousand fathers. And so there are multiple theories and multiple claimants to, oh, I'm the person who came up with the idea of the surge and who was the, you know, came up with the creative ideas that eventually led to it. Um, But my experience was things in 2006 were so bad that everyone realized that things needed to change, and things had to be done differently. So in 2006, the new commander of 1st Cavalry Division, which I was still a part, having moved from a battalion up to be the division planner. Uh, So I'm the the chief planner for the entire division, which was about 12,000 people in and of itself and would swell to about 20,000 people inside Baghdad. And my boss had been unable to go forward on the early recons because he'd had some medical issues. So he and I went together and I believe it was late August of 2006, just him and me and a couple 
couple of his aides. And as we're going around Baghdad, again, it's it's August of 2006, and Baghdad is burning. I mean, things are very, very bad in Baghdad. The civil war has, is clearly at a high level after the Samara Mosque bombing earlier that year in 2006. Literally, the U.S. Army is having to help the Iraqis clean out the morgues every day. The morgues are filling up every night with the bodies that are being collected in this civil war and like physically moving the bodies out of the morgue is a logistical operation that can't be handled by through normal channels. Things are that bad and it's really ugly. So my boss and I go around Baghdad for about a week as he is, you know, seeing what's going to happen when he comes in October, November of that year. He would take over in November. We get back to to the States, to our base in Texas, and I don't hear from him for three or four days. And he had not said very much as we were going around looking at everything either. Eventually, he comes down to the, you know, the vault, the classified vault that I worked in, and he looks at me and he's like, you know, I don't know what we're going to do in Baghdad. He's like, I do know we're not going to do what they're doing now because it's not working. And Joe Phil is nowhere mentioned in any history book as one of the great, you know, intellectual forebearers of the surge. You know, he's not mentioned with Petraeus or Odierno or Jack Keane or the Kagans or Megan O'Sullivan or Brett McGurk or all the other claimants for, you know, we're the one who kind of had the original idea for this. But even to him, it was blatantly obvious. And so I think it was obvious to the entire army and everyone involved with the the occupation that this is not working and something needs to be done differently. Now there was a lot of argument over what the differently meant. Obviously you had the um you know the Baker Hamilton report came out about that time which had its own number of suggestions and of course there was a very powerful movement to simply withdraw from Iraq and declare failure and just leave it be. But everyone agreed that what we were doing had not been working, that Iraq was out of control, that the civil war was burning, and therefore a new approach is required. And then once you arrived uh, with the unit in November, what kinds of things changed? What did you do differently? I mean, a, a number of things changed. We changed our approach in a number of very, very important ways. Now, I want to caveat that I don't think that it's what we did that was the most important thing that led to changes in 2007. I think primarily what happened is an Iraqi story, and we can get to that later. But in terms of what we did differently, because I think that did help on the margins. Our approach had been unhelpful. We changed to an approach that was more helpful. What we did was we got more soldiers into theater and we pushed them off the bases and out into the streets, essentially. We built small bases for American soldiers on the front lines of the Civil War, essentially putting them between the combating sides and allowing them to tamp down the violence in their areas simply by being there. Um, this did lead to higher casualties. You know, in 2007, January to about June or July, the trend line is just nothing but up. As this is an obvious consequence of, you know, you put people out on the streets and more of them are going to get killed. They're out there doing their job. And that's a lamentable, predictable outcome. So that was the first thing we did. 
the second thing we did was use concrete. Tell people that, you know, what we learned was that keeping peace, at least in the particular case of Baghdad, required concrete. And we use concrete in three ways. Um, we use concrete to protect the Shia in their markets and around their mosques, because the Shia Iraqis, the Shia Arabs, were dying from mass car bombs, mostly car bombs, suicide vests, and so on. So we put walls around the areas where they congregated so that car bombs couldn't get in. Um, and this did serve to protect the Shia population. And that then helped lower the temperature. You know, when your particular ethno-sectarian group is dying 50 at a time because your enemy is driving car bombs in, well, that certainly raises the temperature and makes the conflict more, much more powerful. That's the first thing we did. Then to protect the Sunnis, we put concrete around their neighborhoods. They were dying by young Shia men coming into their neighborhoods, dragging them out of their homes and killing them at night in response to those car bombs that were going off in the markets and around the mosques. So we blocked off those neighborhoods so that the people in that neighborhood could control entry into the neighborhood. You could no longer infiltrate through just any alleyway from any direction. There was one gate in and out. We ironically called these, um, you know, gated neighborhoods. They weren't weren't nice like our gated neighborhoods. But having one way in or out and manned by guards who know exactly who belongs in that neighborhood and who does not then enabled them to sleep safely at night um, and not have to worry about being drugged out of their beds in the middle of the night and executed. Um, and then thirdly, to protect us, the Americans, we put concrete down the sides of the roads. Uh, by this time, the biggest threat to the American forces was the EFP, the form penetrator uh, that uh, Iranians or Iranian-aligned groups had pushed into Iraq that was able to penetrate the sides of everything we were driving up to and including M1 tanks. So by putting concrete down the sides of the roads, we denied insurgents the ability to put out those form penetrators that would that were killing us in mass. So those are the three ways we use concrete to protect the Shia civilians, to protect the Sunni civilians, to protect ourselves, all of which was about just lowering the lowering the temperature and trying to get back to something that resembled normality in Baghdad in 2007. Doug, earlier you said that um, a lot of the success um, in the surge was also due to things that the uh, Iraqis did. <clears throat> what was it that they did that made uh, such a dramatic difference? Well, perversely, no one likes to talk about this, but you know, this was a civil war inside Baghdad in particular between Sunni Arabs and Shia Arabs, and essentially the Shia Arabs won. You know, and we don't like to talk about the role of mass killing of civilians in ending civil wars, but it turns out when you read the literature on civil wars, that's usually how they end. You know, it's it's by bringing the civil war home to the civilian population of the other group, whether that is mass killing of Sunni civilians inside Baghdad in 2006 and seven, or whether that's, you know, Sherman's march to the sea in southern U.S. in 1864 and five. 
that's how a civil war ends is when civilian sufficient pain is inflicted on the civilian population. It's not something we like to talk about. It's certainly not in accordance with as the morality and laws of war as we've come to understand them. But historically speaking, that's the way these usually end. And I think it's a stubborn truth that while certainly the things that we were doing helped, the bottom line is this, the Sunni Arabs inside Baghdad and in Fallujah realized the situation they were in and essentially sued for peace, mostly by aligning themselves with us in a way that allowed them to, to seek a better peace. So then uh, fast forwarding a bit, uh, during the Bush and the Obama administration, you served as the director for Iraq and the NSC. Yes. Um, give our viewers some perspective on how that affected your view of that situation. That's a great question. I mean, to see the war from the White House is, of course, an extremely different and extremely privileged view of exactly how this looks. You're instantly catapulted into the very political, senior political level of the war. Certainly at the Bush White House, and I was there from, I I went to the White House in March of 2008. So I was there for the last 10 months of the Bush administration. And President Bush, for all his faults, was extremely focused on the Iraq war. Um, And he would have weekly teleconferences with Prime Minister Maliki on, you know, this is this is what you need to do. This is this is how I think we should do this. This is how we're going to cooperate together to try to, again, you know, lower the temperature in Baghdad, reach some kind of peace, um, end this conflict, defeat the insurgency, whatever, whatever, which of those terms you you think is the key to to ending things. There was a, a deep, high level involvement. Part of of what's going on is is um, I've referred to this the what happened after the firing of Donald Rumsfeld inside the Bush administration as as the revolt of the radical pragmatists. You know, you have Bob Gates who replaces Rumsfeld at defense, who's obviously seen as a very moderate figure. Um, and you have coming to the White House, Doug Lute, who at the time was a three-star general who became the war czar. You know, we're, we're told apocryphally that about six or seven other people turned that job down before he took it. Uh, but eventually you have a, a war czar there who's running the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for President Bush at a very senior level. And I worked directly for Doug Lute during that period as part of his team. What perspectives did you gain from from that vantage point? How did how did the situation in Iraq look to you that, that was different from your on the ground experiences? I think what I learned from that is that you get you get different truths from different perspectives. You know, there were ways in which, you know, obviously, again, the White House is a very privileged position. You can reach out to everyone. You have access to all the intelligence from everywhere. And at one level, you see the war really, really clearly, uh, just because you have all the information. At the same time, you're an ocean away from the war. And so you don't have any touch or feel what's happening because it's thousands of miles away. And so at some level, you're also disconnected in a way that doesn't give you a privileged position, that 
puts you several filters away from ground truth and what's really happening. Doug Lute tried to solve that by hiring a lot of people who were fresh back from Iraq, who had who had just been there, who have uh, you know very who are very cognizant of what's really happening, who have connections to get ground truth. But you do suffer from that. So it's each position, whether you're on, you know, on the ground at a, a very tactical level or in Baghdad at a kind of an operational level, sitting in the headquarters in the green zone or at Baghdad airport, or whether you're at the White House, in each case, you have access to really different types of information. And it gives you a, a different touch and feel of the war. And it's not that one position is is better or worse. It's that they're very different. And you, you get a just a different feel for what the war means and, and how it feels. And I consider myself really privileged to have experienced, you know, three very, very different viewpoints of the same war, having fought in Baghdad on the streets and in Najaf and in Fallujah, and then having planned from the divisional headquarters inside Iraq, being there, but not on the street. Um, and then having seen the war from the White House, you get a very, from those three viewpoints, although not simultaneous, I think I have a, a very good feel for what was going on in the war, just because each of those viewpoints is so very different and lets you experience the war differently. And so now fast forward, it's 19 years later, what lessons learned would you draw? Well, the, the obvious first lesson is don't do this unless you absolutely have to. The second lesson that I think um, it's kind of I, I, I was just tweeting about this, you know, that that the Taliban is perversely learning in Afghanistan right now is overthrowing a government is the easy part. Putting yourself in power, throwing someone out of power while that's what you're focused on when you're not the person in power. That's really the easy part. It's actually being in charge and making a society work, uh, whether you're the occupying power or the new government. That's the really hard part. And I don't think we appreciated that. In fact, I'm confident we did not appreciate that in either Iraq or Afghanistan. That actually, you know, getting to Baghdad and pulling down the statue, you know, that just gets you to the start line of the race. That's where that's where things begin, not where things end. And I think for way too many of us inside governments, inside the society, inside the military, maybe even inside the intelligence community, we were focused on let's get rid of the Ba'athist government in Iraq and then that other stuff will work it out itself out afterwards. Yes, there were visionaries in all those communities I just named who realized that it was not that simple. But I think the the mainstream view, I think from all those institutions was let's get rid of the Ba'ath government and then this will work itself out. And it turns out that's that's just not the case. That's the hard part and that's where the work really starts. Um and I hope that's a lesson that we learn each time we're talking about regime change, um, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or the ones we talk about now, you know, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, we could go on. Turns out setting things up after the regime is gone is really the hard part. I mean, clearly this is a collective responsibility for a number of institutions in government, not just the U.S. military. Right. But as we were discussing off camera, one of the things that we've seen um, during some of these recent conflicts is is one mission creep 
But then two, um, it's pretty easy to get in and it's much more difficult to get out. And we haven't collectively done a very good job of planning our way out of these situations. Do you have any uh, insights into that? Not other than that, this is just really, really hard. You know, I, I think you can you can look around not just the U.S. experiences, but everyone's experience we can look at. You know, the the Russians in Afghanistan, the French in Af in North Africa, Francophone Africa. Getting out of one of these situations is very, very difficult. Perversely, the one time we've done it relatively well was our first departure from Iraq in 2011. It was not perfect by any means. Uh, there were, you know, there's a a great RAND study that's written on things that could have gone better in the in the departure from Iraq in 2011. As things go, that was probably about as clean an example as I can think of, not only in the U.S. experience, but in just the world experience in general, in how do you leave one of these countries. Now, of course, you know, we're, we're back in Iraq three years later um, as, you know, ISIS pushes from Syria sweeps through Mosul and down towards Baghdad. So obviously that's a big hanging shadow over the relative success of the 2011 withdrawal. But just in terms of how do you execute this with a minimum of friction, leaving institutions in place behind you that can at least somewhat hold, that's probably the, the best example that I see. Now, of course, as we're sitting here talking, there's still a U.S. presence of about 2,500 troops in Iraq um, that have stayed since the ISIS fight. Now, most of those are in a training, actually all of those are in a training and advising role. So it's not combat. No one's been killed. No service members have been killed in Iraq in quite some time. I actually don't know when the last one was. I'm guessing 2019 or maybe even 18. Relatively safe. That doesn't mean that spending a year of your life in Iraq away from your family has gotten any more fun, but uh, you're relatively safe, relatively stable. But still, at the end of the day, there's you know four figures worth of Americans who are sitting in Iraq as you and I are talking. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, firsthand account and some very thought-provoking ideas uh, about a series of very, very um, difficult situations. Doug, I want to thank you for um, coming on today and talking to the AFIO audience. It's really been my pleasure. Thanks much. 